One of the reasons we respect the people that we respect the most is their response to adversity. We respect people who, haven't been, who have been hurt, rather, but who haven't hurt back, who have been treated unjustly, but who didn't strike back. We respect people who are faced with extraordinary health challenges, but didn't lose their love for life. They didn't despair. They exercised their superpower, their respondability, their ability to respond rather than to react. It's a power that we all have and we've all exercised. It actually keeps us from becoming like our enemies. It keeps us from reflecting our circumstances. But we've seen the other side, haven't we? You've seen people go through very difficult circumstances and instead of choosing a measured response, they simply reacted. And now months or maybe even years later, they reflect the circumstances they didn't even choose. This is the point of today's message. When we simply re react, we actually relinquish control of our lives and ultimately our destiny and our legacy. But a measured response, but with a measured response, that doesn't happen. As we said last time, there's a reason we miss this. The, the response that has the potential to reverse the, the natural course of things isn't natural. Another way of saying it is the catalytic response is the least intuitive response. The response that makes the most difference in a positive direction is the response that we are least likely to choose. To illustrate this, we began with a story that many of us are familiar with. It's an Old Testament story. The story of a young man named Joseph who exercised his superpower about 25 years, about, for about 25 years before the story ultimately resolves itself. His story is powerful and it illustrates a measured response. And like me and like you, Joseph didn't know the end of his story. Throughout his story and throughout the, his circumstances, he chose the catalytic response, the unusual response, the unexpected response. So you're probably familiar with the story, but let me catch you up to where we are. Here's basically Joseph's resume so far in the story. Joseph Jacobson had been kidnapped once by his brothers, sold twice, the first time to slave traders, and then when he gets to Egypt, and then he's framed for a crime that he didn't commit and ultimately thrown into prison. Up to this point in his life, nobody is looking for Joseph and nobody is looking out for Joseph. And perhaps that's where your story interacts with Joseph's. Yet in spite of these unbelievable circumstances, Joseph continued to respond as if God was with him. And that brings me to the question we left off last week and ultimately the question we're going to end with this week as well. How would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? You know how people in your circumstances normally react, but how would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with him? That your current circumstances are simply a chapter, not the end of the story. Back to Joseph's story. Following the rape accusation, Joseph's master, Potiphar, imprisons him, and we'll pick up from here. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. While he was being punished for something he wouldn't do, the Lord was with him. While he was being treated unjustly, while he's being treated unfairly, God was with him. You see, these are the moments when we want to say, where are you? God, where are you in this? And God says, I, I'm right here with you. But it doesn't look like you're right here with me. God, where are you? The Lord, as unlikely as it seems, was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden, which is a problem for us because in our way of thinking, if God is with you and if God is for you, you don't, um, you don't have a relationship with a prison warden, right? I mean, in fact, if God is with you and God is for you, you're not in prison. Well, uh, you know, in the story, months go by, years go by, and it feels like the story isn't going anywhere. 
And then seemingly totally unrelated, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's butler, who have a falling out with Pharaoh, they kind of show up. Pharaoh is so angry with him that he puts them in the same prison where Joseph is. And here's where the story takes a little bit of a twist. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. And he, Joseph, attended to them. After they had been in custody for some time, because through this story, a lot of time goes by. The story is kind of uh, compressed like most narratives are. The butler and the baker have disturbing dreams on the same night. And Joseph notices that they're kind of disturbed. It's kind of a funny part of the story. He, he comes to them, right? They're in, in the dungeon. And Joseph is kind of serving them breakfast one morning. And he actually says, hey, guys, why do you look so sad today? I mean, it's just an unbelievable question, right? Of course, they would respond the same way we would. Well, let, let's begin with the fact that we're in a dungeon, Joseph. Both of them shared uh, the disturbing, very vivid dreams they had. They were both convinced that these dreams had, had some kind of meaning to it, but they had no idea how to interpret the dream. Then Joseph responds with this. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? He's still believing, he's still trusting, even in the midst of these crazy circumstances. He's continuing to respond rather than to react. Tell me your dreams, he says. So the wine taster, the butler, he kind of went first and he tells Joseph this elaborate dream. Joseph smiles and he says, I've got some good news for you. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And of course, the, you know, the butler doesn't know if Joseph is making this up, but this is certainly a positive outcome to his dream. And it's at this point in the story, we discover something about Joseph that is true for all of us. As much as we have a sense that God might be with us, that God was with Joseph, he was not enjoying the circumstances. He despised his circumstances. He wasn't immune to the pain. He actually says to the, to the butler, but when all goes well with you, remember me, remember this conversation and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. I was kidnapped. And, and even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. So even though God was with Joseph, Joseph felt what we all would have felt. He was as frustrated as we would have been. Well, after hearing this, you know, the baker gets excited and he says, you know, my turn. The baker explains his very detailed dream. And when he's finished, Joseph says, sorry, man, that's a tough one. I, I can't help you. Actually, that's not what Joseph said, but perhaps that is what Joseph should have said. He looks at the baker and, and here's what he tells him his dream means. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. Now, maybe it's just me, but the whole like impale your body on a pole thing, that, maybe that's just too much, like TMI, right? He goes on, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Like, buddy, have a nice day. Anybody else want your dream interpreted this morning? Sure enough, three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday, and just like Joseph predicted, he restored the cupbearer, and he beheaded and impaled the baker. And now Joseph is waiting expectantly. He knows what's going to happen. As soon as these dreams come true, just like he predicted, the butler's going to go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you're not going to believe this. While I was in your dungeon, I met a Hebrew boy who predicted this would happen, this very thing. So every time somebody bangs on the door of the dungeon, Joseph's like, this is my day, I'm out of here. Every time there's a guest, every time there's a visitor, every time the warden calls his name, he thinks, this is it, finally, I'm gonna be set free. The text tells us the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now this, this is the man that God was supposedly with. 
Two years go by. He's, he's 30 years old now, and suddenly Pharaoh has a series of disturbing dreams. Nobody can interpret the dreams. Finally, the butler remembers Joseph, and he says, hey, Pharaoh, you remember that time a couple of years ago we had this falling out? Like, I even hate to bring this up. I don't want to remind you of this. You know, remember you put me in the dungeon, which I'm sure I, I, I deserved. But while I was there, I met a young Hebrew boy, and he interpreted my dream correctly. The text tells us that immediately, immediately Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had been shaved and his, uh, he got a change of clothes, he came before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret that dream. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what comes next are the most courageous words ever spoken by anyone in history. He hears this foreigner for whom God had done nothing for lately. This is his big break, right? He hasn't smelled this good or looked this good in years. And Joseph looks at the most powerful man in the world, his ticket out of here. And he says this, I can't do it. And I think the butler is over here in the corner, kind of squirming a little bit like, oh no, what did I do? Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God, but God. And the problem with that statement is Pharaoh thinks he's a God. Pharaoh does believe in other gods, and, and clearly the, the gods of the Egyptians are more powerful than the, the Hebrew gods. And now he hears this, this foreigner who has this one opportunity for freedom who says to Pharaoh, I can't do it, but my God can. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves. Well, I think everybody in that moment in the courtroom, they're just, they're just kind of un, like in awe of this young Hebrew boy. Fortunately for Joseph, Pharaoh is more curious than he was offended. And so he explains these two dreams to Joseph and Joseph listens patiently. Then it's quiet. He looks at Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, here's what your dream means. For the next seven years, there is going to be an abundance of grain in Egypt. There is going to be so much grain, you're not even going to know what to do with it. But, but those seven years will be followed by a famine and nothing's going to grow. In fact, the abundance will not even be remembered because the famine that follows is going to be so severe. As you can imagine, he was silent. No one says anything. Then Joseph does the unthinkable. He kind of leans in and he begins to give Pharaoh advice. He begins to advise Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. You need to appoint someone to put them kind of in charge of the problem. Somebody who wakes up every single day focused on solving this problem and preparing Egypt during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. Well, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? Anyone in whom is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. He makes him the prime minister of Egypt. And all of my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph goes to work. He begins preparing Egypt for the seven years of famine. In fact, the, the text tells us Joseph stored up huge grain quantities, like, <clears throat> like the sands of the seashore. It was so much that he stopped keeping record because it, it was beyond measure. In fact, what he did was he, he was brilliant. He, he built storehouses in all of the major cities and then purchased grain from the people. And, and as more and more grain came in, the price kept dropping and dropping and dropping. So he stored up all of the grain for the seven years of plenty. And then after the years of plenty, when the rain stopped and nothing grew, the people of Egypt began to starve. And he opened up the storehouses in these primary cities and he began to sell grain back to the people. Well, as is the case with all famines, it spread across the borders. It spread to the surrounding regions up north of Egypt where Joseph's family lived. Jacob and his brothers, Joseph's brothers, they began to starve as well. 
And this is where the story takes a very interesting twist. Here's what happens next. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he says to his sons, what are you doing here? Like, why, why do you just keep looking at each other? I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. So go down there, buy some for us so that we may live and not die. If you ever heard this story, you know what happens next. But, but I mean, there's just so much drama around this because now the stage is set. Fortunes have been reversed. Joseph is 40 years old. His brothers haven't seen him since he was 17 years old. And this will be the ultimate test of Joseph's superpower. This will be the ultimate test of his willingness to respond rather than react. And everybody that knew, that knows this story, they kind of, we know what's expected of us, how we would behave in this position if we were Joseph. The story continues. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. He's the second most powerful person in Egypt, which means he's for all practical purposes, the second most powerful person in the world. He was the person who sold the grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. I mean, just for, imagine this moment. He remembers the terror of having his clothes stripped from him when he was thrown into that empty well. He remembers the dampness of the pit and the smell and the fear of wondering, are they going to abandon me here? He remembers the slave traders, the humiliation of being sold on an auction block. He remembers the hopelessness of prison. And then he remembers the despair of being forgotten by the butler. For a while, as he's trying to make up his mind, he toys with his brothers. He sends them back to get their last brother, Benjamin, that's not with them at the moment, but he keeps one of the other brothers as a hostage. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, chapter after chapter. He's trying to decide what he's going to do. And as he's trying to decide what, how to make his mind up, his, his brothers are just kind of being like strung along for this. Finally, after this, this long back and forth situation, there's so much detail in the story. Finally, at the end of it all, he defies expectation. He defies his own instinct and his own emotion. He employs his superpower. They're gathered with him. <clears throat> this time, all of the 11 brothers are there. He sends everybody else out of the room. They're on their knees and suddenly they're alone with the prime minister of Egypt. They're so confused and, and he's staring at each one of them. And then he announces, uh, he announces this. And just imagine this. I am Joseph. And they look up and they see the 17-year-old in the face of that 40-year-old man. And before they can say anything, Joseph says, is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. But they didn't need to be terrified because in their absence, Joseph had lived every single day as if God was present. And now when it counted most, Joseph was once again not going to react, not going to, to, to respond that way, but he forgave his brothers. The text says, he says this, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not anger yourselves with this when you sold me into this because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. Can I pause and just say something about this real quick? When we are able to believe and when we are able to respond as if God is with us, we gain a perspective on what's behind our circumstances that we can't gain any other way. And this is such a powerful reminder of that because Joseph is able to come to the conclusion, the reason I'm here, the reason I went through everything I went through, God had a plan in my suffering. God had a plan in the injustice. God had a plan in the circumstances that I would not have chosen for myself. When we choose to respond, looking back, we will have perspective on our suffering that we couldn't gain any other way. Now, what nobody knew about this encounter was that God's entire plan of salvation for the world hung by the thread of Joseph's response. 
that before him were the, the, the nations of Israel. The 12 brothers represented the 12 tribes that would become the nation of Israel. Ultimately, through that nation would come the Messiah. The Messiah would do for the world exactly what Joseph did that day for his brothers. And this is why I said last time, and this is why I hope you'll never, ever, ever forget this. Never underestimate the power of a measured response. The story wraps up this way. Joseph brings his entire family down to Egypt and he provides for them for years and years and years. Eventually his father, Jacob, dies. Once they bury Jacob, they have this elaborate funeral and they all kind of come back together in the land of Egypt. His brothers get together, the 10 brothers that sold him into slavery. And they realize that perhaps Joseph was just waiting for their father to die before he exacts his revenge on them. And so they go to Joseph and the text says this, his brothers then came, and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph continues to respond rather than react. And here's where he says these famous words. Joseph says to them, do not be afraid. A am I in the place of God? G guys, don't you understand that God was in this, that God worked through this? You intended to harm me. That day when you kidnapped me, when you stripped me of my clothes, when you threw me into that empty well, you had the power. The odds were in your favor. There was evil in your heart. You created circumstances that generally transform victims into perpetrators. But not this time. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Don't ever forget this. God's intention became a reality through one man's catalytic, unprecedented, circumstance-defying responses none of which seemed significant at the time. None of this, these individual responses seemed all that significant, but altogether they were part of the unfolding story of my redemption and your redemption, God's plan of salvation for the entire world. Here's the thing our superpower, our respondability gives us the potential to be, to be better for it, whatever it is. We didn't choose this, right? We wouldn't have chosen this, but our responses determine whether or not we are better for it, regardless of whatever it is. And it all boils down to that terrifying, liberating question. How would someone respond in my circumstance? How would someone, we know how someone would react. We see that all the time. But how would someone respond in my circumstances if they were confident that God was with them? Your answer to that question is your invitation to exercise your superpower. Your answer to this question is your best way forward. And if you will act on it, you will emerge from whatever you're facing better for it. Let's face it, we are no better than our responses, but our responses have the extraordinary potential to make us and to make the world better. Let me pray for us before we go. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, for this incredible story, God. I, I thank you that we can learn from this one man's response, God, who chose time and time and time again, even though we couldn't see it, God, even though th there was no evidence that you were present in his circumstances, he chose to, res to respond rather than react. God, I pray that in whatever that thing is, that it is that we're facing, God, that we would have the wisdom to see, God, to, to see our way forward, that we would have the wisdom to respond rather than to react. God, and, and although it's so much easier to react, although it's so much easier to, to, to react accordingly, I pray you'd give us the courage to take a step back and to respond, and to respond as if God is actually with us and if God is actually for us. God, and I pray we would choose that way forward because it is that way forward that gives us a future, that gives us a hope. It is that way forward where we don't become the very thing we're trying to fight against. God, I thank you 
God, I, I thank you for what you're going to do in these situations. God, I, I thank you, God, that, that even though we wouldn't have chosen this pandemic, even though we wouldn't have chosen this, this uh, uh, unrest in, in our government and politics, God, and what's happening in our nation, God, you have a way forward. And I pray we would be wise enough to find it, to pray and to find your heart and our next way forward. And I pray that not only us, God, but the people around us, our communities, our state, and our nation would be better for it. In Jesus, your Son, in our Savior's name, I pray.